Hello and welcome to the Danielle Newnham podcast, where I interview founders and innovators to learn the inspiring human stories behind their work. Today's guest is the incredible Mark Murdoch, founder of Mahogany, a multifaceted music company, which is behind the hugely popular Mahogany Sessions on YouTube, famed for its live acoustic sessions with amazing singers in utterly phenomenal locations that include fields, warehouses, cemeteries and churches. All these acoustic sessions are filmed with beautiful cinematography, making the experience even more enthralling. I am not exaggerating when I say that this channel got me through the pandemic. In this interview today to kick off Series 9, we discuss the adversity that Mark overcame as a child, trying to find his way in the world, how music saved him and led him on this wonderfully enriching career journey, which has brought joy to so many millions, whilst also empowering the very creatives that could have been left behind during the lockdowns. This is one of my favorite conversations. Honest, open, vulnerable, inspiring, heartwarming. But before we get into it, here's a quick word about today's sponsor. Val.com is a game-changing AI-powered video conferencing platform. Val has built-in AI-powered meeting summary software that records all your meetings and automatically generates useful summaries at the end of each one. I use it for all my meetings now and have found it incredibly invaluable so much so that I'm using it for the podcast too, to summarize the top takeaways from each episode. If you want to try it, sign up at val.com, that's V-O-W-E-L.com, using my code, Danielle Code, that's D-A-N-I-E-L-L-E Code, for three months free of Val. Be quick though, as this offer expires in seven days. Now, back to the episode. Here is my conversation with Mark Murdoch. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. With all of my interviews, I like to start right at the beginning. So I wanted to ask you, what were you like growing up and what were some experiences which shaped you? Growing up for me was, there was lots of change. I never went to the same school for more than maybe 18 months. So from primary school through to secondary school, I was changing every two years. Not because I was badly behaved or naughty. I just, the school system just didn't work for the child that I was. And so the minute I could start working, I started working. Like when I was 14, 15, I started working in, and I loved music. I grew up with music. My dad was a, is a massive music lover. So there was always things like Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen and Lucinda Williams and Miles Davis playing in, in the house growing up. So that was always part of the culture. And even my first ever concert I went to, I took a girl that I fancied. This is year five, by the way. This is, So I took a girl that I really fancied called Rachel, I think her name was, to a five concert at Wembley Arena. So that was my first ever gig. But so from 14 and 15 onwards, I started working and I loved music. So I figured, where can I watch music and get paid at the same time? So I started working in the box office at the Islington Academy in Angel because I would just take ticket sales and I could watch the gigs. So it was an amazing opportunity for me when I was still at, uh, at school. And then when I turned 18, I could then upgrade to work at the bar and get closer to the stage. And again, I could just watch great gigs, pour some pints and enjoy that. So I was able to watch hundreds of shows almost every night and get paid at the same time, which was brilliant for me. And then I did little bits and bobs. I worked for a music PR company back when we used to, you know, package CDs and sell, C- you know, send CDs to reviewers and journalists. That was a kind of back in 2004, 2005. So really quite a long time ago now. And so, yeah, it was always kind of filled with music. And my parents, even though I didn't do, I don't think I have any GCSEs. And I don't think I have any A-levels, but my parents are always incredibly supportive of the fact that I wanted to work so they could see that I wasn't lazy I just didn't necessarily get on with the school structure I guess I totally get it I'm actually going through a similar thing with my kid right now so I actually this is kind of a personal interest but when you say school wasn't right for you what do you mean by that well as a child I was adopted and so I struggled heavily with various different kind of attachment issues 
So I was, it was very hard for me to be away from my mother, my adopted mother. So I wasn't even able to get out of the car to go into school. I wasn't able, I had teachers coming to the window, knocking on the door to say, come in, I was just hiding in the footwell of the car, basically. So a lot of my childhood was very fraught with that kind of anxiety. Uh, and I think that probably played a part in not wanting to go into a school and being quite scared of these big schools and environments. Uh, so that's where I say it stemmed from. And which is something I've only really learned about over the past few years, having kind of now reflected upon my adoption and how that shaped me as an individual. Well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, this is why I always ask people about their childhoods, because I think it really shapes the person that we are as adults and not many times do the audience know. So thank you for that. Um I have a random point that I wanted to make. I used to work in the music industry, but I don't have a massive connection with music at all. But one thing that really stands out from my childhood was that when I was like, I think I was five and I was on the way home in the car and a certain song came on, I just started bawling my eyes out. My mom was like, what the hell is wrong with this child? Anyway, I'll admit it now. The song was Endless Love. I don't know if you know that song by Dinah Ross and Lionel Richie, I think it was. Anyway, the point was it touched me so much. It was just such a beautiful song and it really touched me. So I want to ask you, like, what was the first song that kind of hit you in the heart when you were a youngster? The earliest song I remember, I remember it playing in the kitchen on the TV, on the con cassette, when you had like that one unit with the cassette inside the TV. And my parents always played it. it was a Leonard Cohen concert that was filmed. And it was Dance Me to the End of Love. And he always had those female backing singers with him. And it's a beautiful song. And I can still remember that gravelly texture on Leonard Cohen's voice and my parents kind of dancing to that in the kitchen. So that was a very early memory. I had loads of cassettes of concerts, even from a young age. I had like, <laughs> had The Cause. Remember The Cause? Yeah, Irish I Irish group. Yeah. Had that. So we were, we were always watching concerts on VHS. But yeah, Leonard Cohen is the earliest song I remember playing in the house. Did you have any aspirations? Because I know lots of people in the music industry that a lot of them had aspirations growing up to either be a musician or in a band. Or So did you have any of those aspirations? Uh... No, <laughs> no, I didn't have any aspirations like that. I didn't have any aspirations at all. Honestly, if I look back on a lot of my childhood and, and a lot of it was filled with quite a lot of trauma, the the aspirational side or looking ahead wasn't actually even front and centre of anything uh, at all. And when I was kind of, I went, I was homeschooled for a while and then I went to a school which had like nine people in the whole year and you'd call the teachers by their first name. And it was like kind of a sanctuary for kids who had been through similar things to me. And um, no, it wasn't at all. I don't even know or remember, honestly, even when I started to want to get into music or anything like that. I think a lot of it. So basically, when I was 16 or 17, I was at college. I wasn't really enjoying it, but I was going every day. And I was at a house party and it's about four in the morning and I got chatting to this guy that was there called Steve Gatons and he took a liking to me and liked the songs that I was playing at the house party and said, we've just started a new business. It's in mobile music. And back then is when you had a Sony Ericsson or a Nokia. So that concept was like, what? What does that mean? He said, we're starting a new company which involves music and mobile phones. You should come in for a chat. I think you'd get on with the team. And so this is when I was still doing my A-levels or AS. And I went to this office in Chiswick and there were about 10 people there in this big office. And they were the first company, they're called Omniphone and the product was called Music Station. And there on that spot, they gave me a job. They said, we like your music tastes and we think you can help. And why don't you come in next week and start working for us on an hourly basis? And that's when my career in music really started. So whilst I was at Omniphone, I was very young at this company and it was growing rapidly because it was it was pre-Spotify, it was pre-algorithm and it was very ahead of its time and it was launching all over the world. It was pre-packaged on phones. This was before data packages even existed and they were very pioneering because they'd managed to invent some sort of compression software which got, you know, a typical WAV file is what... 30 megabytes and an mp3 is about five they'd gotten a song from that size down to less than oh, i can't remember it was absolutely tiny like 50 kilobytes and it still retained the quality of audio which is why a nokia or sony Ericsson could download an album in a minute and obviously it wouldn't be possible back then to download mp3s on time instantly 
So I was there and I quickly kind of ascended my role to then be managing the entire global network for content and programming and music team. So I was like 18 or 19 and I had a team of 25 people in Asia, in Europe, in North America. And I was very much over my head, but I still went through with it. And as you climb the ranks of any business, you kind of tend to get less and less into the weeds of what you love doing. So when I went from being in charge of all the playlisting, because back then I was making the playlist. This is so old, you know, long ago. I was making the kind of new pop playlist or the or the jazz playlist for the users to consume. And anyway, as I had a team and I was having to do more of a kind of HR role within the team and manage that, I got further away from what I loved and what I started in that business for, which was music. And so 2008, 2009 was an amazing time because things like SoundCloud launching, things like YouTube were becoming more of a platform for creators. And there was murmuring of an ad-based system where creators can get paid for videos and blogs, music blogs were starting to come up. Things like The Line of Best Fit and Brooklyn Vegan and Gorilla versus Bear, all these blogs were becoming the go-to place for music discovery because we didn't have recommendation engines back then. And there was no Facebook or Instagram anyway. So that literally was our, our go-to. And in this office one day when I was just, I think I just finished like a pay review for one of the staff I had and I was really just not inspired by any of it. I just decided to start a blog on WordPress and I called it the Mahogany Blog. And I just started sharing music that I loved. And a lot of it was coming from SoundCloud and just from having worked at Omniphone and having, you know, knowing music contacts and managers. And it was that kind of era. 2009 would have been like that kind of Florence and the Machine time, all of those murmurings, the XX, the beginning of a lot of the acts now that are so huge. So it was an exciting time. And then it was quite quickly that the blog became, I guess, one of the top blogs out there in the rankings of popularity and I started getting invited to do radio one panels and I was getting flown around the world to do events and we were almost the influencers of our time with a lot of brands and labels because obviously if you're if you work at Polydor or you work at uh I don't know RCA and you're part of the press team and an artist has an album out your job is to get as much exposure as you can for the artist so blogs came at a great time because if people wanted to do interviews and exclusives and premieres and all those things so yeah so in 2009 in february of 2009 i sat down and started this blog and just on a daily basis would share songs that i loved so you started this blog it did extremely well when did it become an idea for something bigger like making it into a business or something greater than just the blog year or so later when the blog was kind of really at its peak I was at another house party so there's two pivotal house parties here in this story <laughs> both at about four in the morning and I had I knew two guys who were, were friends of mine but they weren't close friends but they were like you know we we'd hang out and go to festivals together in Glastonbury and one of them had just graduated from Leeds and he was a kind of budding director of photography and he had a very important camera of the time, which is called a Canon 5D, which was essentially the first ever point and shoot camera, which could shoot in HD. Uh, so it was massive. And so many of the YouTubers of the world cut their teeth on this camera. So he had this camera. He had all this gear from his university course. And the other guy, Hobby, he had just finished film school as a director. And they had both started their own production company. They were kind of, again, budding and hungry to get out there and start doing work, figure out their craft. And I just said, we should shoot bands. Oh, you know what it is? There were a couple other channels started out there. There was something called Black Cab Sessions, which was this really cool channel where this guy would just grab acts and they'd perform in the back of a black cab. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'd often grab them in between their meetings as a, as a band or something. And there was SBTV. So Jamal Edwards had started in 2009. Uh, and there are a couple others. Blogatech is a French channel. So there are these really cool, very early machinations of channels. And it's at a time just before when YouTube had announced that they're going to be able to have a kind of some sort of ad revenue split with creators. So everyone was really piling in at the prospect of being able to make some money. And I said, look, I have all these contacts. I'm doing all these interviews on the blog. I'm meeting managers. I still have a job at Omniphone. 
But if you guys are up for it, I'll invest in some audio equipment. I'll invest in some bits and bobs. And if you guys go out and shoot these sessions, we'll just see what happens. So there wasn't really a business plan at all. Um, they also love music and they had some jobs happening on the side, but this was something they thought would be great. So <laughs> that early phase, 2010, we started 2010, was we started well because I was booking artists that I knew. And, you know, the first year of sessions with bands like James Bay and George Ezra and Everything Everything, Natty and Liam Bailey and... We just started really quickly and I would be sat at my desk telling them to meet, you know, James Bay at Hampstead Heath Station at 1pm. And they just head up to shoot anywhere they could for free in a woodland area or something, which is why the reason why Mahogany started so acoustically is because we only had one microphone. <laughs> and so therefore, all we could record would be a vocal and a guitar. Anything beyond that we'd really struggle with. And after about 50 sessions or so, it was really becoming something that I thought this could be something. Again, no business plan, but I thought this could be something exciting. And I left the business on my phone. That means I kind of forfeited my share options. I sold my car. I took all my savings and put it into helping Mahogany continue doing these sessions, basically. And that must have been about 2011 is when I left my kind of salary job to do mahogany full time. That's so fantastic. I love these origin stories. And I love I love the fact that it became kind of more acoustic because you only had one mic, which is often the way with these things, isn't it? But when you started out, so obviously you sold your car, you put everything into it. I want to know, because you were so early to doing something like this and using YouTube, I mean, lots of people on YouTube, but I don't think many people were doing something like you were doing. And it was pretty special from the get-go so what was the reaction not just from friends and family but the wider public like how did people react to you starting this and and giving up essentially a paid secure job to do it what was the reaction I think my dad would have thought I was mad mm -hmm. because YouTube and that YouTube and all that was really small mm. you know that was before videos were getting millions of views that's when the home page of YouTube was actually a curated thing by a YouTube team there were so few videos uploading to there a day. It was, mm -hmm. when I think back to it, it was a different time. And even when we got to a thousand subscribers it was huge. The reaction to the music industry was amazing because there was now this team working almost every day, shooting these kind of really cool, quirky sessions of artists all over London. So we were inundated with requests from PR managers and artists and I would just scroll through a tour schedule on Time Out London and be like, and I'd just pick out acts that I want to do. I'd contact them and say, hey, do you want to do a session? And they'd say, what the hell is a session? Because it was that early on in the process of these kind of acoustic videos. And so we would just really double down and we had no money. So every location we filmed in was either a cemetery or my dad's garden or hobby's mum's garden church grounds we would just do anywhere we could for free because we couldn't afford to pay to shoot anywhere we didn't have any lights it was just us three i would record the sound ricky would do the camera and hobby would direct it and so the reaction all round for quite a few years was this isn't necessarily a very serious thing because it was still i guess a bit gimmicky and a bit it looked a bit hobbyish i guess from the outside it was obviously special and you knew it was special. I think you had the foresight to start something at the cusp of the YouTube wave and you had no foresight that this was going to do well and obviously it did. How would you say Mahogany's evolved? Because Mahogany sessions are, I think, what you're most kind of well known for, but there's more to Mahogany than that. Can you just explain a bit more about the company and how it's evolved? Yeah, sure. So in 2013... We just started to be able to get ourselves into better locations and we were, we'd able to use our channel's kind of exposure to persuade nicer places to let us shoot there for free as long as we credited them with the fact that it was filmed at this hotel or somewhere. And so in 2013, I actually bought on two people. So one person was a guy called Patrick and he had a background in production. He knew all about filming. He would work for Sky and Discovery Channel and Nat Geo and all these kind of things. And another guy called James who worked in the live event space because I thought, okay, we need to kind of 
work out how we increase our productions and monetize that. And also as a concert lover, as someone who went and watched gigs all the time and worked in the venue, I thought we should take these opportunities to the stage because we're getting super early on artists and there's a great opportunity here to be able to do concerts. But in 2013, after they joined, we did a session at a place called the St Pancras Hotel and that stairwell where they did Spice Girls back in the mm. day. And I said, the woman who was the manager said, hey, are you guys doing, can you guys help us? We want to do music as well. We want to be able to integrate music in our brand. Do you guys do that? And obviously we didn't, but we just said immediately, yes, we do. And a couple months later, we won a contract to do all of the music programming and strategy for this really luxury hotel chain around all of Europe. And we were in over our heads with the idea and the prospect of it but it turned out to be really lucrative and really successful. And that actually created the capital we needed to invest back into Mahogany. And that was the moment that Mahogany Creative was born. And so Mahogany Creative has been for the last, well now nine years, our in-house creative agency. And over those nine years, we have done big global campaigns for an events, activations, production work for everyone from Spotify, BMW, AB InBev, Canon, Nikon, Louis Vuitton, Moet Hennessy. There's the Red Cross, there's OnePlus, there's a lot. So we've always kind of, from that moment onwards, Mahogany Creative as an agency was a real revenue driver for the business and actually allowed Mahogany, the brand, to exist because we were able to drive this money-making enterprise alongside it. The client work, because I looked up, I was so impressed by kind of all the brand names. And then I saw on your YouTube channel, the various ads that you've done and work. And I just thought, wow, you because it, it makes total sense when you think about it. Like, had you written a business plan, which obviously you didn't, but had you written it, this would have been such a great foresight to say, right, this is what we could do. But sometimes these things happen organically. And I wanted to ask you about that. With these mahogany sessions, obviously they were organic in, in all true senses of the word. But you said that, so you weren't paying for venues, which is pretty smart that you were able to get them. Were you paying for the artists? And if you weren't, how did you get them all to agree? Everything in the early 2010s was just a wild west. Labels didn't know what sessions were. There was no legal framework for doing a session with James Bay if he was on Universal or whoever. And things in 2000 and so back then it was just just free. Oh, no, we charged a tenner for batteries. <laughs> <laughs> so we needed to get AA batteries for our microphones. So we charged £10. What was important for us from the beginning is owning the rights to the content. We knew that we can't charge the artists because they are also broke and they don't have any money, and it's weird to charge them for something. So from the very early stages, we always had a contract which said, we're going to cover the costs of production, but we are going to own the master recording and the video. So that was something we, and that's something when I left Omniphone, I paid for a lawyer to come and help us draft that agreement. And then in 2016, it kind of changed when we decided that everything that we shoot, uh, so we cover all the costs in the Mahogany session, right? The artist just needs to get there and get home again. We cover all the costs of a mahogany session. And in return, we own that master. And that master is then distributed to YouTube and also to Spotify and Apple and Deezer. It also goes towards a couple of sync companies in Europe and North America. It goes on a couple of airlines. We were on British Airways and Qatar, Icelandic Airlines. So we, our job is to kind of make the session as widely licensed as we can and then we do a 50 50 revenue share with the artists so you know flash forward now and we are paying back sizable checks to performers for a session that they did in 2018 for example and we have racked up now on spotify over 300 million streams across mm -hmm. our content and that's become a great you know, income stream for some artists out there who may not have had that if they didn't do the session. Absolutely. I had no idea that's what you did. That's really great to hear. But how did you get away with not putting a cut towards the record label? Because I'm assuming they would have wanted some. So it's a little bit different with the record labels. My love and my joy is to go and find the artists before they sign. Uh -huh. And we've been quite good at that over the years, I'd say. Now, well, it's the last 
I don't know, six, seven years, the record labels are a little bit different. When they do have an artist in town, if they have a Dermot Kennedy or they have a whoever it may be, their rules are they want to own the content outright and have no kind of other owners of the content. So they, they literally just cover the production costs. They pay Mahogany Sessions mm. for the video. They own it. It's their video. But then we get to sort of associate with the big, big names. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that, we actually you know, turn down 80% of the requests that we get because some things just aren't quite right for us. You know, it has to be the criteria for us is 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 real. You know, when you can boil a song down to a very stripped back version of itself, like you mentioned, Endless Love. If you strip Endless Love back down to its bare bones and it's just Lionel and Diana singing it with no, with one guitar, it's still as flawless as it is with all the production. And so that's always been a marker for us is to make sure, you know, is it a great song? Because sometimes songs nowadays are very chorus heavy. So if they've been co-written with a real expert songwriter and it's for a kind of radio promotional single, it's quite common that there's not a lot of verses. When you strip it down to its bare bones, you really hear the song for what it is. And so sometimes when we get requests for big pop stars or massive, massive names, we have to say that it's not quite right because this song is actually like 70% chorus. And if you boil that down to a shit back version, all you're going to hear is the artist repeating the same two lines. And it's going to reveal that it's not a very good song ultimately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting because I was going to ask you in general about the music industry and how it's evolved. And that is an issue, right? Because I think, well, I think we're getting back to it kind of more acoustic now. But there, there's definitely a period between when you started and now where a lot of musicians were led by the record labels and they weren't necessarily happy about it. They weren't necessarily making the music that they wanted, but it was something that was popular. So I was going to ask you like about the whole process, but not just the process of like who you pick, but... The process of now, like picking a location, because the cinematography on the mahogany sessions, I mean, it makes it stand apart so much. Most people, I think, back in the day before we had YouTube, would only listen to music through their ears, right? It wasn't necessarily a visual thing. Of course, if they went to a concert, it was different. But what you allow people around the world to do now is those that can't afford or don't have access or don't live in a location where their favorite band are going to come, you allow them to have access to an incredible experience. Like when I watch Mahogany Sessions, I, I sound cliche, but I feel it. I really feel that kind of connection between the artist and myself and with the song as well. So what's the process now of getting these artists in front of the camera and getting that kind of beautiful harmony of the song and the cinematography? How does it work? The location is a character in the video. So the location is such a big part of the performance. And so we always try and, you know, depending on the artist, we'll find the right space. And, you know, whether it's kind of church cathedrals or if it's empty warehouses, things that add layers and texture and depth just bring something to the performance. And the artist hasn't ever performed in those kind of places, really. Normally, the artist is kind of, as they do, they're facing forward, they've got a mic stand, They've got two monitor wedges and they sing forward and that's it. And because the mic stands there, they're pretty rooted to the spot. They can't really move. So when they are put in the space and, you know, basically, so from the beginning, we've always tried to have no microphones in shot. So you can't see any microphones at all. They're all hidden, which completely changes the artist's performance because they can be free. They can turn, they can move, they can look up, they can look down. So they're just kind of led by their emotion, which is, I think, why, like you mentioned, you can really feel it. It's because they can feel it and they're freed. And it's very raw because we don't they don't have playback. So they're relying on their own voice. They're not getting any kind of um, feedback from an audience or from a wedge or anyone. So it's a very raw and exposing experience for them, but also quite liberating, I think. I think it goes back to their childhood when they'd sing openly in the kitchen and just be free with it. And I think that kind of brings that nostalgic element of their early singing back. Uh, and also since the beginning, it's always been one shot. So we don't cut ever, which means that we are under equal pressure to get it right. And sometimes we get it wrong. You know, sometimes you miss that moment because the camera hasn't panned quite left enough yet. And we've got to do another take. So everybody, the singer has to get it right vocally. We've got to get it right. And I think that pressure creates these unique moments like with Hamza for example we went and shot that in a church and she was so friendly so bubbly 
and so relaxed and it was a lovely day it was in the summer and everyone just had and it was in the afternoon everyone had come from the park and you could just feel the positivity there so we just try and make the environment really relaxed you know it's not if you go and do a tv spot it's quite pressurized or a radio slot if you go and do radio one you have one shot <laughs> to get this right promote your record and get out of there because they're going into the news and traffic in about 10 seconds <laughs> So I think with our environment, we just try and make it as creative and conducive to being creative as we can. It shows. And when you said Hamza there, so through the pandemic, I obviously was on my uh, laptop fair amount and uh, Hamza and Jacob Banks. I mean, those two, I had them on repeat, the mahogany sessions. And I just think I was so grateful for music during that whole time because I think, you know, I think I read some of the Beethoven once said music can change the world. And, you know, I really believe it. I felt it during the pandemic. I felt like it was a really kind of unifying thing. I wanted to ask you, because obviously the music industry was hit hard and a lot of the other creative industries were hit hard. What was that time like for you personally and for the company? So before the pandemic, we had a massive office in Hoxton, which is in East London, and we were shooting all the time you know twice a week we would be shooting and when the pandemic came we had to really rethink the whole business get rid of our office get rid of things that were actually you know ultimately not necessarily essential but to be honest I sprang into gear in lockdown and kind of really ran with a lot of the live streamed gigs from Instagram live and would kind of do these mahogany sessions live streams with all sorts of artists all over the world, every day almost it was. And it was a really, and also before the pandemic, again, with my team, a bit like Omniphone, I was becoming less and less and less involved in the music side because we had staff for that all. And so we kind of restructured things and I was able to actually really reconnect with when I started Mahogany because I was back to curating music I was back to sharing it I was back to managing the Instagram account and those are things that I had staff to do and I re-found this incredible joy I had you know so Mahogany audience is very unique because everybody there has some shared love of music and similar taste kind of so there's a kind of similarity of anyone following Mahogany and everyone's incredibly positive and supportive. There's no kind of trolling or arguments or anything in the comments. The comments when you look down our section are all just so positive because everyone loves music. And so the pandemic for us was, yeah, is actually a really great experience despite what was happening outside because we grew our audience almost by double. And I was able to really understand our followers again and understand what they loved and what they were into and that helped redefine the last 18 months for us that's so good to hear because obviously we know so many people suffered during that time but especially the creative industries when you're right about the comments because when I'm going to interview someone I look at everything like how they're perceived I try and find people that actually know them pretty well and ask them questions but I would look at the comments even throughout the years and so many people said the same thing that I felt, which is like, these are like a savior. These videos really help people dealing with whatever they're dealing with at the time. They're not just, you know, one-off videos. They're videos that you return to, which I think is wonderful. So I love what you're building with Mahogany and Mahogany Sessions have been such a wonderful source of inspiration for me. I wanted to ask you, because you had so many guests on that, what has been your favourite performance? And it doesn't mean like your favourite artist, but what Mahogany Session has been your favourite and why? That's a good question. I mean, every I've been to, I don't know, 80, maybe 90% of every session we've done since 2010. And they all have a memory and they all have some sort of imprint on me. We did Michael Kiwanuka. We used to go to festivals, right? Me, Hobby and Ricky would just drive to a festival and we would go there with our cameras and kit and I would just go side of stage and I would just and persuade artists to come to the local field and we're going to shoot. And they wouldn't even know what it's for. And we did that with Michael Kiwanuka in 2011 and he would just released Tell Me A Tale, which is the first track he did. And he was this like really fresh-faced, super friendly kid. We were all kids, but he was also a kid. And... That was a lovely memory. We did it in this field at sunset and it was, he played I'm Getting Ready. And that was a lovely moment to see someone that is so much talent and purity. 
And we've done other ones. We did a Nick Mulvey in the jungle in Thailand, and he just got engaged about an hour before, and he was just so happy and elated. And it was a really nice vibe, and we were getting eaten by mosquitoes in this jungle. But yeah, there's lots. My one of my, my when I was all like kind of dumbstruck and actually kind of uh, what's the word when you see a celebrity. I was like a bit kind of lost for words and it's not even a big artist, but there's an artist who's called Fink, F-I-N-K. And it's an artist that when I was younger and a teenager, his music really connected with me. And I went to all his concerts and I had all his albums. I had a signed album. He replied to me on MySpace in 2006 and it was a huge moment for me. And this guy is not, he's a great artist. He's not a megastar. He's not someone that many people know about. And I managed to get him on the channel. And for me, because I connected to a huge music so intimately, was for me a great moment. And it's, yeah, so it's a one called Fink. Um, and this is the thing was my personal moment where I was like, yes. Uh, but to be honest with you, there's so many amazing memories from all over the world. From We did Billie Eilish in a warehouse in LA when she was kind of just on her ascension to absolute stardom we did gary clark jr on a park bench in primrose hill which was insane we did leon bridges in this old victorian house in east london and that was his first ever session and it was his first time ever out of america and so yeah they all have great cherished memories we did george ezra during a hot air balloon festival in bristol there's so many but they all have amazing memories and we've always just we, we're a bit like a band because like a band doesn't start with a business plan a band doesn't start with an express way to make money they just want to play music so we and when we were doing stuff with all these artists we were kind of on the ascension too so we kind of we've we have climbed with the artists and we all have great friends which we've done sessions with and if we bump into each other at a festival we have a kind of shared connection because we've all been through a kind of struggle you know it hasn't been easy to get to this point for us and also for any artist that's kind of got to a point where they're successful or sustainable, you know, financially. So there's a kind of grit that we share with other artists who've also been through that kind of creative journey. I was going to actually ask you, because there's a lot of artists that you had on, like you said, early on in their careers, and obviously they evolve over time. How important is it to you to get emerging artists on? Because now you're in a position where you could just have some huge big names and not give a spotlight to people that are up and coming. Why is it important to you to have up and coming artists on it? We did a session the other day with an artist called Miles Smith. And that's going to be going live, I think, this week. And for him, I mean, he's an incredible talent. But for him and other artists who come and do it and get the invitation from us, it's a massive validation for them. And they've been, you know, often kind of performing in a vacuum, you know, on Instagram and doing the occasional gig. And when I get in touch on a DM and say, do you want to do a session? I imagine for them, it's a really important thing that they're doing the right thing and they're going on the right journey. And I think that's always lovely. And when they come on set, they're a bit nervous and they're a bit timid. But they leave thinking, yeah, I'm going to keep doing this. This is the right thing to do. And they must have had so many setbacks or parents not understanding what their dream is or girlfriends or boyfriends not really getting it or just kind of putting up with schlepping around to small open mic nights. And so to have that connection with them and give them the belief is a massive, massive thing for us and a real enjoyment I get out of doing it. I can imagine when you started saying that the first question that popped into my head was you obviously have a very successful business but what's the validation who gives you the validation or what gives you the validation do you ever look back and go man look how far I've come or do you have any validation or do you just keep going forward I think as we said at the beginning of the podcast we were very faceless for 10 years or 11 years we had no face to it 12 years sorry and I kind of felt Last year, that should change. And I really would like to talk to our audience and connect with them and talk about music openly. So to be honest with you, that has been a massive validation for me the last few months because the reaction to the videos that I'm doing and the conversations that I'm starting with the community have been incredible. And I feel like we have 900,000 subscribers on YouTube and 86,000 on on Instagram, but I feel like I know all of them. Mm. And I feel like we have a real shared bond because we're not selling anything, you know, we're not trying to push anything on people. We just want to share music. And that has been a really big thing for me. 
to kind of yeah open up the doors a little bit and bring people into the world and then there's some moments for me you know we were shooting in america in december and we had driven three hours to go to this insane like it's the biggest wind turbine field i've ever seen in the mojave desert and we were shooting at sunset with an artist called emmett fenn and it was like an orange sunset and we just got to the last take and the wind turbines were all blowing silently above us and that at the certain kind of pinch me moments where i do realize this is a insane job to have and we yeah we've come a long way in that regard and then the other thing in terms of what's amazing about mahogany is that we have employees and we also have lots and lots of kind of contracted crew members and we have had people on the team now for years and years and years and they've had mortgages and children and they go on holiday and they do all these different things and it's amazing that mahogany has played a part in supporting them to do that and just from us doing things in a park on primrose hill in 2010 now someone's planning to go to Spain with his family or something or putting an extension on his house because he's done so many sessions of us in the past year or something and that for me is amazing because it kind of creates a bit of an ecosystem and the kind of music is fueling creativity and it's fueling people's happiness you know helping people develop and grow and so that's for me is a, a nice bit of validation that it's working. Absolutely and I think just talking about music in general and again going back to your audience because you bring so much positivity to the audience, the audience return that. And I think you being more visible on Instagram and places like that is a great way for you to connect. Because as we said right at the very beginning before we start recording, you had been faceless for so long. And I know why you did it. I know it's like putting the artists at the forefront, but I just feel like everyone's so engaged now. Everyone's so connected to Mahogany. And so it's so nice to hear the origin and origin story. And actually, in research for this interview, I was going through Mahogany's Instagram last night, and I went back quite a few years. And one thing that I would also say, we would talked briefly about the pandemic years earlier, but obviously there was a lot of other things going on. And the murder of George Floyd was one that was front and center for so many people. And I remember that year just feeling like the world seemed so hopeless. We were all stuck inside. And I just wanted to ask you, because I know that's when I first saw that you showed your faces, so to speak, of who's behind Mahogany. But I wanted to ask you, that year 2020 was pivotal for you. What was it like personally? Well, I think that year and that moment, especially online, was, and when I kind of felt like, you know, we'd been faces this entire time. And I started to go back over the artists who have black heritage through mahogany and you know it hasn't been as common for black and black mixed artists to pick up an acoustic guitar it's not as common because you know it wasn't necessarily the songs playing at home when they were growing up and so there's never been a, a huge amount of black artists playing the kind of music that we did in mahogany sessions but i went through from our first artist was natty who's an amazing artist so we have always wanted to create a platform for all artists. And if you can play an instrument and you've got good songs, you're on the Mahogany Sessions. Like, there's no question about that. And so that whole process was me sharing all the videos of some of the amazing Black and Black mixed heritage artists we've had over the years. And that was a really important moment because I didn't actually realise how many artists we'd done. And, you know, I really made an effort, even subconsciously, to get as many artists from you know who share my heritage as I could and I think and that was the first moment I just shared a few members of the team at Mahogany myself Ajani at the time and Ricky all of which have African roots because I think no one would have maybe expected that the person behind Mahogany has you know Nigerian heritage with him and it was a really quite important moment and everyone was so supportive on the online perspective to do that and to support us in that sense and I don't think it matters who does Mahogany I don't think that matters if I was Chinese or if I was Irish or I was Nigerian but I think it was a moment to reveal myself and say you know we are all so similar and you might have thought this was being curated by a you know someone white background because of the music is so predominantly has been predominantly folk and acoustic but actually it's not and maybe change some people's perspectives about who loves this kind of music and who really enjoys it maybe 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a really important time to do it. But also the music industry itself is very white centric. I don't know how much it's changed in the last 20 years. But when I worked in the music industry, every manager I ever met, every record label manager, every kind of artist manager, nearly all of them were white and, and white men, not not even women. So I think representation matters. I think we can inspire others by telling our stories. And I think your story is obviously hugely inspiring. One person who I forgot to mention when we were talking about you growing up is another thing that I found on your Instagram. Sorry to be such a stalker. Tell me about your grandfather. Oh, you're right. Yeah. So my grandfather was called Manik Dalal. And he was, he was an, he had an insane story. He died at 95. He was an Indian man. He's Parsi. So if you're a Parsi, is a sect in India which had Iranian descendants. So Freddie Mercury is Parsi. So it's quite a light-skinned Indian complexion. And he was pivotal in the aviation industry. So he was part of the setup that started Air India. And so back when Air India used to have a, a spot on Heathrow Airport. Heathrow Airport back in the day was five caravans. It was Pan Am. It was Air India. It was BOAC and one other. And there would be maybe two flights a week coming in from India. And him and his staff would have to go and clear the rabbits away from the little landing ship they had. So that's how long ago, you know, he was part of that industry. And then he went on to form a really big charity called The Bhavan, which is a really important Indian musical and cultural charity. Um, And that's had, you know, so much endorsement from around the world. And then he was also the managing director of Tata, which is obviously like a very popular, I think it's one of the biggest company in the world, (laughs) one of the biggest employees in the world. But I think part of his, you know, he was such a nice man. He was so understanding of what I was doing, which was kind of not what he'd imagined I'd be doing. It wasn't a kind of traditional business route or university route or academic route, which he did. And so when I started Mahogany, despite it being completely the opposite of what he'd expect, and I was just having to struggle through for the best part of seven, eight years to make to where we got to today. He just loved the fact that I was just doing something and motivated and hungry to just to make a mark. Mm. I think he's such a obviously such a huge pioneer. And I think you are too. A couple more questions I wanted to ask you. Who would be a dream mahogany session guest? Mm. Dream mahogany session guest. Let me think. <laughs> Who haven't we done yet that I really want to do in the world? I would like to do a couple of artists that have that are a bit older. So I would love to do like Candy Staten. Oh yeah. Um, or I would love to do um a couple of the legends, I think. Mm. I think we've had so many, you know, artists that are basically between the ages of 20 and 30. <laughs> like yeah. that's basically the artists. Mm. And I would love to do some of the older legends and connect with them in that sense. So I can't think of who, but like, like a Carol King would be amazing. Yeah. Well, you um, can do it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they're all up for it. So yeah. I think, yeah, going back to the old generation and kind of shining a light back on them because they still got it. Mm. They might be a bit older. They might be a bit, you know, a bit stiffer, <laughs> but they still got the chops. Like I it hasn't totally gone at agree. all. Yeah, I actually, this is the question I had written down. I had said, who would be a dream mahogany session guest? And then I've written maybe someone from time ago. And then I put Carleen Anderson. Yeah. This is a personal request. I think <laughs> we should get her on. She would be so up for it. She lives in the UK. She yeah, would like, really, honestly, and she would, she would be amazing. And like you said, obviously, you know, I, I totally get why you have a, a huge amount of young artists on. But like you said, there's plenty of artists out there. They don't stop making music. They don't stop playing music. They're there, and yet they're not so visible. If Carly Nansen wasn't on Instagram, I would just be listening to her albums and not knowing anything about her. She's into, like, cold water swimming. She's brilliant. So anyway, okay, personal request over, but watch this space. I'd love for her to be on it. Um, A couple more questions. Obviously, Rick Rubin is very well known, and... He's said before that we are all born artists, then society does its best to beat it out of us, which I thought was very apt. I I think some traditional schools, not all, but some traditional schools are partly to blame for this. And I wanted to ask you, you obviously struggled at school. 
if you could give a lesson to children of today, what would you do in terms of getting them to remain creative? What's one lesson you've learned in life about staying creative? I think what young people don't realize is how many different options there are to work in the creative space. Everyone looks at the pop star on stage. You know, there are 99% people who aren't on stage and it's equally as fun and dynamic and interesting. And I don't think that is apparent to anybody. So, you know, if you get a gaggle together of 10 year olds, they didn't realize that some person can control the light, some person control the sound, some person can control this. And like, there's so many interesting layers to a music video or a record being made in the studio. And you don't need to be a singer. You don't need to be a guitarist. You don't need to be a piano savant to be around your favorite actors, your favorite musicians, your favorite sports people. You can just be in other roles and they're not very apparent, I don't think. When do a running job on a set and realize there's 500 people here, mm-hmm. I can definitely get one of these jobs. Mm-hmm. Which one is it? And that's what I would try and imbue to them, that there's so much to do in the creative industry. That is an excellent point. Final question, which I ask everyone, is I just want to revisit where we started. So if you could go back in time to a younger Mark, what's one piece of advice you'd offer him? Uh, I would say get a lawyer the minute you start your own business. Ask your parents to just pay a bit of money to have a lawyer advise on what you should do. I feel like there's a story there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's what I would do. I appreciate your time so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Thank you so much for coming on. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. You're a very good interviewer. Lots of good questions. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Mark Murdoch of Mahogany. And thank you to Mark for sharing his inspiring story with such candor. I hope you found his lessons from taking Mahogany from pre-smartphone days to ubiquitous social media useful. Now, a quick reminder that this episode was sponsored by Valve.com, the game-changing AI-powered video conference platform that has its own inbuilt AI-powered software that summarizes your meetings and it records all of them and then sends you summary, which is automatically generated and is extremely useful. If you want to try it, sign up at Valve.com, that's V-O-W-E-L.com, using my code Danielle Code, that's D-A-N-I-E-L-L-E Code, for three months free of Val. Be quick though, as I said earlier, this offer expires in seven days. Finally, I always like to leave you with a quote and today is no different. So here is a quote from musician Graham Nash in my previous guest, Andrew Zuckerman's book called Music. It reads, life is not perfect, it never will be. You just have to make the very best of it and you have to open your heart to what the world can show you. Sometimes it's terrifying and sometimes it's incredibly beautiful. And I will take both. Thank you.